Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. All righty, we are back. I'm very excited. Thanks for tuning in. We are going to be rolling into our quarterly economic and M&A update. Uh, we did our last one in July. We had some things come up where we did not want to do one last quarter of 2022, but we have all four quarters booked this year. And we have ITR Economics, Butcher and Joseph, and the National Center for the Middle Market. And this episode is actually sponsored by ITR Economics. And I was willing to do that. And if you've probably been following this podcast for a long time, I haven't had anybody sponsor this show except uh, ITR Economics last year. And it's truly because ITR, Brian, Lindsay, and the team, I'm so grateful for their willingness to do these quarterly updates with me that I want to give them a huge shout out because of how much I appreciate it. Brian's time is crazy valuable. He speaks all across the country and the world. He's got uh, many things on his on his plate. And so the fact that he thinks it's valuable to spend time and have a conversation with me that you all can participate, I hope I'm going, being a good medium for the listeners. If you're not familiar with ITR Economics, they were founded in 1948, and they're the oldest privately held, continuously operating economic research and consulting firm in the U.S. with a long-term accuracy rating of 94.7. ITR Economics has forecasted major economic events such as the Great Recession of 2008. Years in advance, ITR provides reliable industry and company forecasts tailored to clients' needs. And ITR also offers economic webinars, subscription, periodicals, consultative reports, and data collection services. They're practicing economists, and that is like so crucial. Brian's going to be talking about in this episode about the Fed's forecast accuracy compared to theirs. <laughs> that is something that I absolutely loved as part of that segment. And it's so important because they make forecasts and then they are working with business owners where they see the information, they see how their advice and their forecasting is applied and then what the results are and then they publish it. So they are truly showing everybody the impact of their advice over years and years and years. So it's not just people sitting in a high tower. It's truly practical data that matters that everybody listening in can take action on. And I actually went back and picked up the book again, How to Make Your Move, which is one of Brian and Alan's books. Fantastic. I highly recommend it. They also have the, the Prosperity in the Age of Decline that I also recommend going and checking out. Truly practical information. And as Brian and I get to the end of our segment, you start to hear me pulling on where should we get the data? And I was like, duh, I just got to go back to his books. So highly recommend that. And then in the second segment, I have Jeff Butner from Butcher and Joseph back on the show. Love the conversation with Jeff. We spend time talking about what's going on in the emergent acquisition marketplace. If you don't recall, if you've not listened to Jeff's uh, the episode from last year, Jeff is with Butcher and Joseph, and they provide emergent acquisition advice for ESOP transactions, uh, raising uh, debt financing for internal buyouts to third-party sales, private equity, recapitalization, the whole works. So. Jeff is in the weeds talking about deals, valuations, deal structures all day long. So he's going to be coming on. And in the segment we're talking about is what's changing? How are deals and valuations or deal structures being changed by interest rates, inflation, the activity from buyers? How is that impacting everything? So 
I really, really loved that conversation. And then the last segment is with Doug Farron. He's from the National Center for the Middle Market. I have interviewed the National Center multiple times, and they just got done with their most recent middle market survey. So they survey a thousand business owners about their confidence in the marketplace, whether they're making capital investments, what's happening with employees or people hiring, or they laying people off, as well as the growth rates. So I really enjoyed this episode because we started macro, kind of bigger picture, got into like the M&A valuation deal structure, and then we talked uh, to Doug, who's given us the visibility into the minds and thoughts of a thousand privately held business owners. And the last thing is there are two updates. The first one is that we have an intentional growth boot camp coming up. I'd have view and run the company like a financial asset based on the five principles. It's at Rollins College in Orlando, Florida. Super pumped. So it's May 11th. That's a Thursday, Friday. It's $5,000 for the first ticket, half off for additional tickets after that. You can go check out the curriculum. There's new videos on the website. Go to arcona.io. Go to the Intentional Growth Boot Camps. And then the Intentional Growth Academy, the 2.0 version, just got released, and we are ready to go. 71 videos, nine and a half hours. It's 1500 bucks for the do-it-yourself, and it's 5000 bucks for coaching calls, as well as a complimentary financial assessment, as well as the ongoing access to the material. And you can grab a partner or two if you need to, to get everybody on the same page. So boot camp, virtual academy, things are rocking and rolling. Please check them out. So thanks everybody for tuning in. And here is our quarterly economic and M&A update. You ever found yourself in your office after an executive meeting and you're sitting there going, I have huge decisions to make, whether it's hiring that next key employee, buying that next piece of machinery, buying a building, launching a location or product or whatever it might be. And you're sitting there going, is this the right decision? And then you think back about the original vision you had when you started the business or the vision you have right now that you know is possible in the marketplace. And you sit there and go, how do you know and how do I know that what I'm doing is the right thing when realistically you have the option just take all the money home and solve for annual cash flow and essentially just have a job that's kicking out a lot of cash the reason that you would do all those things is because you want to grow a company that's worth a bunch of money that gives you the freedom of choices to do what you want long term whether that's take a back seat and be a passive investor whether that's sell part of it or some of it essentially just have as many choices as you want But what we find is that most times entrepreneurs and business owners are solving for annual cash flow because they don't know how to measure and monitor the value of the business and where they are today and how what they're investing and doing is growing a more valuable business and how to measure that into the future. And I had experienced the exact same thing. I ran a family business that was doing 20 million in revenue, 100 and some employees. And my dad and I had this constant conversation back and forth about what we should be doing and where we should be going, but we never really knew whether what we were spending our time and money on was making us progress towards that eventual goal of having a valuation that we wanted that gave us the choices. So then you have to sit there and go, maybe I should just take the money home or I should just hope and pray. That is exactly why we created this financial assessment because if you organize your financials in a certain way and we have this financial foundation with four components, you take this assessment, it's 22 questions, you don't need your financials and at the end result of it, there's a results page where Pat, my partner and I walk through five videos to show you a case study of what good looks like and how to actually project out the future value of the company and how you can make 
the, the decision's clear today to say, if I do these things, what's the impact on cash flow today, my ability to fund my growth, take the distributions, pay for taxes, all while staying in line, progressing towards the valuation that I want. So go take the assessment below and I hope you enjoy. Good morning, Brian, how are you? I'm well, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Like I was just saying, uh, jealous that you're Marco Island. I'm back in Minnesota. And between the uh, conversation with Jeff at Butcher Joseph and today, I got uh, who knows what from my twins. So <laughs> yeah, you to have a nice little nasally conversation here. But uh, I, I, I'm so appreciative of you and Butcher Joseph being able to have these conversations quarterly because I think our audience appreciates it and not everybody gets to see you guys speak on the Visage podiums and all the places that your guys are going all over the place. So I just want to say I appreciate it from my perspective and our audiences. And um, for the conversation, I was, when I was talking to Jeff, I'm like, let's see, though, we did the last one in July. There's been a couple things that have happened. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah. Brian, I said, to, I said to Jeff, it's like kind of like a weather person, right? Like it's way more fun when there's a storm going on, right? <laughs> <laughs> Stressful, but fun. Yeah. So let's, uh, I mean, I, I don't know where you want to pick this up. I mean, we thought we, we could... Obviously, interest rates and you know inflation conversations, you know labor supply chain, all these different things. How like is there a particular point in the in this you know new environment that you want to start at? I think it, it has to start with um, Fed tightening and the inverse yield curve that we find ourselves in. Because of my Austrian economic leanings, I'm not a big Federal Reserve fan, anyways, central bank fan, anyways. Uh, but these folks have just proven my point over and over again about um, how well-meaning people who aren't equipped to do an exceptionally difficult job with very imperfect tools is what we're confronted with. And we find ourselves in this situation today, but they've created an inverse yield curve, which means we have an 88% probability that the U.S. is going to be going into a recession by the end of 23 or certainly in 2024. And it didn't have to be. I mean, inflation was already going to be coming down. There are mm -hmm. certain things that they just can't control despite their godlike complex. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for saying that. It's like up in this high tower. It's like, what's my, like, eight, you know, the meta metadata Bloomberg terminal saying about how the real people are, you know, handling things down there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just unbelievable. But, you know, food prices aren't going to, easily come down because there's a war going on in Ukraine. It's messing up the fertilizer mm -hmm. markets. There's nothing they can do about that. Right. Energy prices aren't going to be coming down quickly. There's nothing they can do about that either because of what's going on in Europe. So they traditionally back out food and fuel. But if you, if you listen to these guys, they keep slipping in their concern about food and fuel inflation and what it means for consumers. And traditionally, they understand that's beyond their purview. Mm -hmm. There's nothing they can do about it. They're not in charge of the war. They're not in charge of weather. Mm -hmm. uh, but these these guys seem to be hell bent for leather to uh, prove that they can control almost run anything. it all. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, very uh, very interesting thread that I want to pull. But I want to go back just for the listeners, Brian. Would you do me a favor and just briefly describe the inverted yield curve? Because I think it's a super. I, I dove and geeked out on that a couple of years ago and kind of really got my. I think my head wrapped around it, and it actually inverted in 2019 before the pandemic too, didn't it? So because slightly, it, it slightly, did. wasn't there like a repo market issue where like the there was some stuff going on where it kind of just was slid under and then the pandemic hit and I don't know if they just got brushed under the rug or how that plays into kind of what's going on today. 
It wasn't sustained long enough in 2019 to be uh, really problematic. We saw it happen. Uh, and statistically, the, and I'll describe the inverse yield curve at okay. home, but to answer your question, it has to be sustained for two consecutive months in order for it to be a, a negative signal for the economy. And that's all it is, is a signal. You know what the inverse yield curve is? It's when we use the 10-year, three-month treasuries. And that's fairly classic. It's probably statistically the most reliable one. And uh, the three-month treasury yield just moves with the Fed funds rate. So mm-hmm. there's a very tight correlation between those two. And we find ourselves with the three-month treasury yield at 4.71%, while the 10-year is at 3.63% as of yesterday's close. So short-term rates are not supposed to be higher than long-term rates because the risk is longer term. And what the market is saying now, apparently um, it's weird. And historically, we don't get ourselves into these inverse yield curves because the Fed will take their cues from... The bond market. The bond market is a lot more prescient than the Federal Reserve is. In our first book, Make Your Move, uh, I remember Alan did this research and it was great. Uh, the Federal Reserve, we looked at their track record. You know, we measure our own track record all the time, right? So mm-hmm. their track record, they're right less than 50% of the time. This is not an attribute you want in people who are deciding what to do with money supply and interest rates. And for the whole world, kind of, you know. Yeah, I, want, I want right? your accuracy rate at the top, not, not theirs. Yeah. So this, this, think of, this is not a good idea. And one of my early mentors way back in the day, Ryan, uh, J. David Barnes, he was chairman of the Mellon Bank. He was part of the Federal Reserve. And he taught me, he said, Brian, you got to understand, 50% of the time the Federal Reserve is talking, they're lying. They know they're lying. Uh, it's, they figure it's none of your business. The other 50% of the time, they don't know if they're lying or not. It's just no. <laughs> So we started this whole conversation with other people, and I think uh, we might be actually, we should just throw them up top. <laughs> <Yeah. they're, laughs> I think they're 60% is what they said. Yeah, like, you know, they're, they're average. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So now we have this Federal Reserve that failed to follow the bond market signal, and we have this inverse yield curve. So it's not the inversion itself that's negative. It's just it's a clear sign that the Federal Reserve has pushed interest rates up too high, too fast. Uh, and they did so because they waited forever. I know, Brian. It was it like it's so crazy because of how like little I've known about this for most of my life, and as I've been like learning it, it's like I I have an email, Brian, to my business partner in February of 2021, saying, "Why is the Fed buying 80 billion in mortgages every month when the houses are like going up at 15 percent every month? Do we really need to do that?" And everybody's like, it's transitory. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I'm talking to all my business owner clients and it's not really sounding that way. It's just like, it's like to your point, like they're not having conversations with just normal people. It just doesn't make any sense. No, I hate having a bipolar Federal Reserve and uh, no offense to bipolar people, but in Federal Reserve, this is not a good trait to have. They they overreacted to the pandemic. They waited too long to uh, respond to improving conditions. And now they're overreacting. Uh, on the monetary tightening side of the street, it's just too much. Well, in in it, it, what's what's I don't know. I don't know if the right emotion, Brian, is like obviously scared or nervous or whatever the hell the the term would be is. But but like so they 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 backed off a little bit with the quarter percent. But then they, everybody thought the jobs report was going to be like a hundred thousand, and it was five hundred seventeen thousand. So like. Well, it, 
And, and, and there's more clarification there that I need. I would love to hear, but like, it's just, you, there's what, it, what it shows me is like, they're just kind of flipping all over the place. Yeah, they are. Um, here's the thing about the jobs report. Uh, the 517,000 jobs that were added in January is from a seasonally adjusted number, which means they go in and they play with number of days and, and then all this other stuff. It's in the long run, it gives you reasonably good data. Um, but from any month-to-month perspective, especially this 517,000, it tends to be nonsensical. You want to know what actually happened to the number of jobs in January? Not seasonally adjusted. It went down over 2 million. We lost over 2 million jobs in January. Now, that was a smaller than normal decline in jobs. So that it wasn't good jobs report, but the emotional, the visceral reaction, I saw it on your face. We didn't go up 517 jobs, really. We really went down 2 million jobs. Totally different perspective, right? Oh my gosh, Brian. Like, so yeah, like this is one of my, 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 my gripes about all of this crap of these terminologies, because like, like it's so like, it's so difficult to grasp on like, what's the real data? Cause like, what, isn't there like, and again, this is where I'm learning of participatory or like, you know, if people are in, are they retired or they, like, they completely dropped out you know, you start to go like, what's the actual number we're trying to pay attention to. So yeah, we follow the labor participation rates. Um, uh, a lot that matter a great deal. And uh, it's true, a lot of us older folks have uh, opted out, but that's not where the glaring weakness is, in my opinion. I'm more amazed at how low the labor participation rate is for college-educated people over the age of 35. That's where we're really missing a big chunk of people. That and uh, the the very young, 16 to 24, they just don't want to work anymore, it seems. I mean, their their numbers continue to go down. And I think what we ought to do is say, hey, kids, you got to pay for your own school if you're going to go to school. You know, no more. <laughs> and the degree should pay for itself because you're going to do something that exactly. is productive afterwards, right? Yeah, yeah. You're not going to get a park, you know, and I call it a, you either get a park bench degree because a park bench can support a family or you get a liberal arts degree, you know, or something puffy philosophy how you know you'll make a great salesperson as long as you are good at sales <laughs> and you're selling something that makes margin that can pay your bills <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so, so we have we are sowing what we have uh, we are reaping what we have sown in other words, over the last generation and what's also fa- like fascinating too and um it was a couple years ago and uh alex was on my show Tavarsky, right? Um, that you used to work with you guys. And we were talking about like the demographics and stuff like that. So is this pl- playing into the demographics too of like the Gen X having not as many people as the boomers and boomers retiring earlier? And I mean, is Actually, this- Gen X had more, they were a smaller population, but they gave birth to the millennials and the millennials are the biggest generation we have ever. People are, you know, unless it's a May, September romance or December romance, it's the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the millennials that are having uh, the disease. And it, it is fascinating how it works through time. Like, you know, my generation, the boomers, we're the biggest, right? And then we gave birth to the Gen Xers who went small, who gave birth to the millennials who are huge in this country. Mm-hmm. And they're giving birth to the Zs who are small. It goes, you know, it's like an accordion yeah, in our demographics. It is fascinating. What is better than that, though, from my perspective, is that uh, you've been reading the articles, I'm sure, or listening to other 
but you probably had a podcast on how uh, China's demographic is negative. We know Japan's is, it's been negative since the 1990s. Uh-huh. Russia's is negative. Uh, every industrialized nation on this planet is confronted with this negative demographic, except for Us. the United States. I know. That's crazy. Because we've got these millennials, which essentially sets this country up to mm-hmm. be the innovative leader, the economic leader, uh, for the next 50 years or more. And uh, awesome. people despair about the future. I say, you're kidding me. <laughs> you, <laughs> there's lots of other things you can despair about, but not our future. I mean, we got this. I, Brian, it's really interesting. I mean, you and I had a, a, that exchange and where I was kind of telling you some of the books that I've been reading and just open to like how I just, I'm just trying to figure out how the hell this all is working. And that Peter Zion, I don't know how to say his name, yeah. but I, I, it was crazy because all this other material I've been reading, I'm like, oh, like you said, despair, like, oh, oh, and then he comes out and it was, it's like starts with the demographics and geography and supply chains. I'm like, shit, we're, we're, we're good. We're looking pretty good just from <clears throat> the peer like waves. And, and if we're, because we're consumer led, yep. we're going to have people that need yeah. things. And Alan, and I wrote that long before Peter did that. It was part of our 2014 book about why we it. got this long term. And the, the trends have been there. So, Brian, how does the uh, with, with the with the kind of the issues of like the the middle class and the, the the lower income class right now with the demand where they have purchasing power? I mean, how does that shake out over time? Because you know, when we were starting, we were talking about like demand and making sure that people have enough to wake up, buy things, and keep going. How does that part of the cycle have to do with it? Making sure that the people are able to get up and actually keep the whole machine going. And the reason I was asking that, Brian, because like when I read like the Wall Street or the Economist or whatever it be is like in two articles, like side by side, you can see the everybody talking about the resilient consumer and how everybody, you know, we're just resilient. But then on the next article, it's like no one can afford anything and inflation. So it's like, (laughs) it's like, who like, it's the same story as we're talking about the same world. So how, how do you interpret that? My interpretation is they both are offering bait click and they want to confuse you. So you'll come back tomorrow and read another article. That's exactly what's going on. The data is this. At at the macroeconomic level, uh, the consumer is in fantastic shape. Businesses are in very sound financial uh, condition also. The high tech is laying off people because their stock prices were in the tank and they overexpanded because they believe their own hype. Okay, Mm -hmm. But Main Street is doing just fine, even if, you know, the high-tech sectors got a little uh, over their skis. Now, in terms of the, the let's say that the non-professional services level, that income stream, real wages are going up. I mean, and it's proportional to demand, obviously, but in the United States, real wages, which means adjusted, inflation-adjusted incomes, I should say, not just mm-hmm. wages, but all incomes, are rising. They've never been higher. And when you look at uh, the standard of it, what we call lower middle class today, when you look at all the assets they have, the stuff they have, it, people would have given their left arm for this 40 years ago. So, <laughs> you know, true? the system is working and uh, people are living better. Now, could we do even better? Are there people that still need help? Of course. Absolutely. There right. always will be. But Brian, it, I, read, I, I read this book called Factfulness. You ever come across that one? Nope. Nope. Um, it, essentially just uh, the, the book was pretty much saying what you just said. Like it just breaks down for the last like 150 years, how we've just lifted it so much of the world 
out of poverty, the, the, the infant deaths have just plummeted. I mean, truly like to your point, things are way better than most people oh, yeah. think. And we're way ahead than anything else. And there's just this swirling of negativity kind of thrown on top of it that just confuses people. Right. And you want and my theory about the negativity, by the way, is because it gets people to concede power. If you get somebody afraid, then they'll give up some power of their own and they'll give it to you because they want you to fix it or to protect them. And that's primarily a politician's job. <laughs> what a wonderful job. Yes. <laughs> I know. Oh, man. I, I, I will refrain from going down to rabbit, so a couple of rabbit holes here. So like, um, when we think you, you and I were talking about like with the, the ex, like the Fed, the Fed's knee jerk reactions that are going on and how how are you seeing like when you're looking at your leading indicators and stuff like how this is going to be impacting certain parts of the business demand and business cycles and like you know the investment of certain capital or acquisitions i mean obviously there's a pure math equation that goes in there but we all need to keep up and keep going and we all know that interest rates aren't as high as they were back in the 80s so like how are you guys interpreting how that's all going and what 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 could be coming well, there's a whole lot you just laid yeah, down yeah, I'm there. Just so like, let, me, <laughs> let me unbundle that a little bit. <laughs> the leading indicators are still negative. As I read the signs and the data, we're beginning to see a potential reversal in them. I think it's a little too soon uh, based on the inverse yield curve and what that usually means for the economy for this to be the real beginning of rise, say, even in the stock market. Um Personally, I don't believe that the stock market is about to rise because the monetary conditions still remain tight. And that usually means stock doesn't rise. So what I tell people is, okay, well, if that's not going to move, but you still need to create wealth, go into different asset classes. That's all. (laughs) And in particular, what I've been spending the last year telling them to do is think about multifamily real estate, uh, multifamily housing. Uh, Because when there's a single-family Lack of single family, affordability issues abound. Having multifamily housing that caters to people that are making good money uh, is a winning proposition. You know, I have lots of charts that show, you know, if there's some negative demographic area like San Diego, you're going to, you know, think twice about it. But if you go where there's a strong demographic and a, a well balanced economy, it doesn't get very sexy in terms of your capital gains, but you, you can sleep really well at night and you save your equities for the sexy stuff or, or going out there and having some fun. Uh, but man, anybody will listen, I'll, I'll tell them you've got to be in real estate between now and the next 10 years. And I really like the uh, multifamily side of the street. Interesting. And how about like, for businesses and, and like sectors specifically, when I was talking to Jeff from Butcher Joseph, you know, we were talking about different industries and it's kind of like, there wasn't anything obvious. I mean, it was kind of more obvious stuff they were talking about, but it, you know, all made sense of like, Hey, energy versus, you know, people that manufacturing and, you know, coming on the onshore. Is there anything in particular that you're watching from industries and sectors as kind of things that some stuff is shuffling around with the geopolitics going on? Well, the foreign direct investment is really ramped up to favor the United States. And, and it's funny, just yesterday I was looking, I asked my team to look at the data. I don't want to take credit for it. Who's investing in us the most? The Europeans are. And where was China? Dead last on the list. They're not putting money into the United States uh, in terms of buying business assets. And where are we putting our money? Europe, 
and very, very little of our money is now going over to China. China's DOA uh, in terms of their prospects going forward. So that's a huge geopolitical shift that we've seen in a, in a short period of time. Really started a little bit pre, you know, pre-COVID, 2016, mm-hmm. 2017. Uh, that's been very, very significant. Going down into the realm of um, industry, and the near sourcing is very real, by the way, and that's nationalism, and it's happening worldwide. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite of globalization. Nationalism means shorter supply chains, but it also means more inherent inflation in the ecosystem. So that's going to be one of the driving forces going forward. What I've been doing is, because we have recession concerns for 2024, I've been looking at industries uh, quickly. We're coming up with a very detailed list of uh, people who aren't going to feel the recession. Uh, This is going to be a very bifurcated uh, economy. So, uh, I look for, all right, so if your traditional customer over there isn't going to be buying your services or your product, who can you sell them to? Who is mm-hmm. going to be doing well? And a lot of that is professional services, but it's also dollar stores that sell food. It's grocery stores. It's cosmetic uh, does very well. Um, you know, we, the economy could look lousy, but we still want to look good, Right. And given the demographic of the United States, it takes more and more product for this to look good. So, <laughs> uh, I got some clients that sell some uh, some uh, women's cosmetic stuff. I'll, I'll have to make sure that we get your uh, email address over yeah. there. <laughs> uh, no, it's so it's so bifurcated and like just you think. Is it bifurcating the people that are thinking forward like this, Brian, saying like, okay, who's going to be selling what? So is it more of like foresight or is it more specific like sectors or industries or something like that that you're thinking of? It's more uh, income stream. You know, we could see because of this recession, board sales fall off, but BMW won't. Uh, Chevy may have an off couple of quarters, but I can mm-hmm. assure you that uh, Lamborghini is going to go, well, what are you talking about? Things mm-hmm. could not be better. That's what I mean. Got it. Yeah. So the, what are, what are some of the impacts of the, I'm trying to think of how to word it is like with the baby boomer transition. So I want to hear what your thoughts are on this. I've been noodling on this concept and I haven't really heard a good conversation piece around it. It's like, so, you know, we've been hearing this trillion or $10 trillion baby boomer tsunami. Oh, you, your facial reaction was kind of like what I've been given. <laughs> so I'm curious, like when I look at like, the, I, I've looked at it's old U.S. census data, Brian, but it's like so many of the bigger companies, you know, out of the, so here are the numbers that I, it's been a long time, but it was like 27 million privately held entities. And then like 6 million of them actually have employees. And then there's like, five million or underneath the five million in revenue it's like 95 percent of the companies so like as you kind of go it's the whole parental principle right where like yeah, you know, yeah. the smaller pri- privately held companies are mainly at the bottom and you just do some basic math and it's like i don't know how those are going to mathematically transition because you have a lot more jobs and you do actual like cash flows that can be transferred any thoughts of like how that dynamic might play out because of, of the numbers that you just laid out and those are i think reasonable realities to contend with. I think you're going to find with all this PE money that is in excess out there, that somebody's going to come in and do a lot of roll-ups to yeah. make something of size that's worthwhile scaling. It's the only thing that makes sense. 
very interesting because that's what almost where I came to the conclusion. Like you have like essentially you're gonna have the top as like bolt or the platforms. You're gonna have a bunch of bolt ons where you're you don't you don't need the infrastructure and you're gonna actually be able to mathematically make it work. Right. So it, sometimes it'll be because they want to move into a geographic territory. Very few of these businesses have something truly proprietary or unique about them, and therefore they'll probably just shudder. And then kind of going back to what you're saying earlier is like, as long as there's the demand, the demand's going to go somewhere, right? Like it's not going to just drop off. So whoever's going to be sitting there for the demand, um, going back to a couple of our earlier points, Brian, like when we, I I think part of this conversation, one of the themes that's kind of uh, popped up to me is like, what data are people looking at? You know, it's just so, you know, you can be having conversations with people and you're just talking about two different things. You know, we're talking about the jobs report and then labor (laughs) participation, like, so, like, what are some of the, you know, there's obvious, obviously, and I want you guys to make sure that you do describe what reports and access that you guys have for your data, because obviously there's a, a truth there. But, like, what are things that people should be paying attention to? And what are things that should people shouldn't be paying attention to if they want to keep their sanity and start viewing the world the, the way they should? Stop reading headlines. Okay. Because headlines are there to get you to click or buy something. They are not there to edify. Uh, You'll find the truth probably about halfway through any given article is when you'll begin to actually get into the real meat of the matter. I encourage people, whether it's on this device or a laptop or anything else, always go to a very wide array of uh, spectrum news. A, it keeps the algorithms confused as to what you really want. <laughs> yeah, just, just click on something random, like, what's going on? He likes both of those things. <laughs> exactly. So I, I get from the BBC to NPR to the Wall Street Journal to um, Barron's and a few things in between uh, because that's my job and I got to know mm-hmm. what's going on. There are some news sources, and I don't know that I want to go on the record with it, that I just don't even bother with. Someone says, hey, did you see an article on? I say. No, because I'm never going to. No, on I purpose, know. the answer is no. Yeah. <laughs> I do not bother with that news source because I know it's garbage. So yeah. why should I bother? But our favorite uh, source is obviously our own. We, we take a great deal of pleasure out of destroying false headlines because we deal with the data and we have nothing to sell but uh, enlightening our customers or our clients as to uh, what's really going on so they can make profitable business decisions. And that's not done with headlines. I encourage people also to say, look, if you're reading the headlines every day, what you really need to find is a sports team you can get behind because (laughs) (laughs) it'll occupy that time for you. A little bit more productive, right? Make it probably less crabby depending on the sports team, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're a New York Jets fan, you're going to be crabby no matter what. Yeah. That's the same thing with the Vikings here. You know, it's it's very, it's very emotional. What happened to them this year? (laughs) Oh, it's, it's every year, man. The, uh, so is Aaron Rodgers going to go to the Vikings because uh, well that's just that's where they go it's kind of like the Florida Florida is God's waiting room you know people come from the the package yeah, yeah. over <laughs> the, to the Vikings I mean, Barb did it right so yeah, oh, yeah, I've got the Far Vikings jersey of course I do <laughs> uh, it you know Brian why don't you spend just a little bit of time for the audience maybe talking about your guys's data and how you aggregate it and some of the things that you pay attention to. And I know we'll be close to wrapping up when we're done with that. Cause I just want people to think about this again, because you're going to be coming on a quarterly basis. Like 
getting people familiar with how you're processing the data and what you're paying attention, but maybe kind of just explain a little bit behind your guys' system and what you guys are doing. I will do my best. Um, sort of what you're asking about is happens down in the boiler room of our ship. And I don't spend a whole lot of time uh, down in the boiler room, but we, we are bringing in every month over 10,000 different data series. And uh, we categorize them based on industry, uh, based on whether it's new orders, financial shipments, all those things, uh, price indexes, commodity prices. And on every single one of those, we run our rate of change analysis. So we know what phase of the cycle they are in. We know what the signals are. Not that we get, any one of us looks at all 10,000 at any given time, but we have clients that need all that stuff. And it's worldwide, obviously. It's mm-hmm. not just the U.S. And one of the things that we do that I think is different than some other people, we may get into this piece of data from the government. And, you know, because we're always looking at these trends, we can say, well, that looks a little wonky. Mm-hmm. So we have a way of correlating that to maybe some private industry source or a client who's in that space. Is that, is that being borne out? And when it's data from China, which is, sometimes difficult to rely upon. We have uh, uh, colleagues over in China that we converse with on a regular basis. We say, is this what you guys are seeing? They go, oh, no, no, that's not what's really happening over here. (laughs) Um, So uh, there's always ways to corroborate uh, the data. And I think that's extremely useful to do because in this data age, I'm not sure it's an information age, it's a data age. Yeah. Um, you have to be able to do that or else you're going to make some bad decisions based on some bad data. Mm-hmm. I just think about, you know, over the last, you know, since I got introduced to you guys years ago and nowadays, I mean, I, I don't know if there's, I mean, it continues to show me how important what you guys are doing and the role you guys play to Thanks. show the truth. Yeah. I mean, I really mean that because I mean, every day with our business, Brian, with a, as a fractional CFO or the financial modeling and the training that we do, I mean, people are making big decisions that are going to have a ripple effect for a long time. It's like the decisions here, I know it's going to ripple, but it's trying to get that foresight that you guys are, I mean, you've been doing it for a long time. And again, your accuracy is slightly better than the Fed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, it it pays to be independent and the Fed is not independent. That's one of the, I had, I declared over 40 years ago, we will not work for a government. We will, not work for a military. We will be capitalists for businesses, totally independent. That's what we do. And I'm happy doing that. Do you find it even more gratifying nowadays where there's, I think some struggles of companies and people being able to speak their minds because of where their incomes are coming from? Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's pretty cool. Cause like, I think we need more and more, more people to be able to speak Hey, like this is the truth. Regardless, it's just data. It's right. There's no bias. Well, I wanted to say thank you so much for coming back on the show. I appreciate these conversations. I know that I could sit here for another four hours and just suck all the knowledge <laughs> as possible, but you wouldn't allow that. You got too much to do. So, but you have just, twin girls to get to. So, <laughs> one of them's home because they're sick. Like, like yeah, in between uh, the the little 
call that we had. You know, I got one at home. The other one's probably coming home. So yes, correct. But I just, I just really truly mean it. I appreciate it uh, from your perspective, and then the the ITR uh, crew. Everybody's been very appreciate. I'm very appreciative of everybody. So uh, best place to go find you guys. I know it's the website. We'll have all the links in there. But anything in particular that you think that there's uh, one call to action on the website or anything that we want to, we've got. I think Lindsay's got the. There's one particular thing in the link. But anything that you think that would be the right next step for everybody. If you're interested in the longer term, yes, uh, it's in July. I don't have the date. You'll see it on the website, I think. It should be already there, uh, maybe too soon. Alan and I are going to be doing the webinar, ITR Produce webinar, talking about the 2030s. You know, that's a part of our long-term view. And it's an important update. It's more and more people understand where we came from all those years ago. Um, and I think that's going to be a biggie for people to uh, tune in on because they're getting too caught up in the short term and they have to keep that longer term in mind also or else it's all for not okay well, maybe one last question how in god's name do you say sane when you have been doing this for as long as you have and you realize how short term everybody thinks and then like yet you're just kind of seeing the long term i mean because i think a lot of people that are listening and brian have the same kind of mindset and i think it's just harder as you get bombarded i mean I think, well, maybe last, I don't know if I've asked that to you before, but I just find it so peaceful to talk to you. And I'm just wondering if there's any trick <laughs> yeah, to the trade. Well, thank you. Yeah. Have a, you, and you have it, have a sense of humor, be willing to smile, uh, <laughs> meet people where they are and uh, don't forget your passion. Now, for me, that's making a difference. It must have mattered to maybe some kid that I'll never meet that I was here. And as long as they stay focused on that, it's all good. Wow. Well, that's a great place to end. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show again. Until next Brian, time. always a pleasure. Jeff, how are you, sir? Doing well, Ryan. How are you today? Good. I'm so excited. I was just saying that, uh, you know, we've got a new year, and I'm very, very appreciative of Butcher Joseph and you guys just committing to this. It's uh, I was uh, talking to Jack, and it sounds like we had some successful traffic, which made it worth it for everybody. And I know my listeners were very appreciative of just the casual conversation we're having about what the heck's going on in the M&A world, how our valuation's happening, and you guys are in it all day long. So I just I appreciate it. I know time's valuable for you guys. Well, we're uh, we're happy to be a part and participate, and uh, great to see you again. A lot has changed, as uh, you might imagine, <laughs> so there's plenty to discuss. Yeah, and I think I was actually looking because I, I, we had a bunch of work stuff going on, so I didn't do Q4 because we're, we're just trying to get the, the foundation of these uh, quarterly ones, uh, the rhythms going on. And like between July of 22 and January or February of 23, just a couple things happened, right? <laughs> just a few, yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. So where do we want to start, right? Um, you know, I think, well, Jeff, just kind of set the stage for the listeners as they're kind of getting used to these quarterly deals. I mean, we, you and I were talking kind of the four buckets that we just want to generally have conversations with of, uh, of the valuations, M&A activity, and then we got the debt and equity financing and then um, the, in, anything new with taxes and kind of just anything underneath that. Any, any other commentary you want to kind of give of maybe for the listeners of why do you think those are the, the good buckets and then we can kind of roll right into it? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think those are great buckets. I think um, they they, uh, they have a lot of relevance, and I think um, when we when we start talking about those uh, particular buckets, there's there's a lot to cover within each. So um, I say let's get to it. So let's talk about valuations, man. I mean, so we're not at zero percent interest rates anymore, and I don't know, man. Where do you want to start? <laughs> yeah, m- money's no longer free. It was free for a long, long time for all intents and purposes, and uh, 
now it actually costs something, um, you know, and honestly, in the grand scheme of things, if you look back over the years, uh, the cost of money today is, is kind of pretty consistent with, you know, more traditional mm-hmm. cost of money. Um, but, it, you know, the uh, the increase happened very quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it was seven Fed increases throughout the course of 22. So Fed's fund rates up near the four and a half and 4.75 percent sort of target range now and, and probably likely to head a little higher, um, you know, maybe at a, at a, at a slower pace, but um, it still seems to be what the Fed is guiding anyways. And so that's had, um, you know, sort of a big impact, as you might imagine, on M&A activity and valuation. Mm-hmm. I'll start with M&A activity because, as you talked about, the last time we, we, we chatted, it was sort of in the, in the middle of 22, right, the June period. And, and I think as we saw what was happening up until then, we still had a pretty strong M&A market. Uh, for the first six months of 22, it was really sort of a continuation of that that strong momentum throughout 21. And I think what we saw is that in the middle part of the year, uh, the activity started to slow a little bit uh, going into the end of the year. Uh, as the interest rates at the Fed activity started to kick in, I think that um, really started to show its teeth in a lot of the M&A activity in the latter half of the year, uh, really kind of starting in Q3, obviously, and, and, and really sort of having its full force in, uh, in Q4 of 22. And, and things have kind of continued that way into 23, at least into the first quarter. Um, I think there's been somewhat stabilization in, in some of the activity uh, that we've seen. I think we're, we're seeing less activity probably out of the private equity buyers. Um, simply because those are the ones that, of course, are going to be more driven by the interest rates and the ability to, to kind of lever a balance sheet and, and, and obviously generate the types of returns you know, for their investors. Let's, I want to I pull that thread. It's super, that was really interesting because I, I would have thought just kind of in this activity bucket, Jeff, but also with the valuations, I mean, they're, they're, they're probably highly, highly, highly correlated. I don't know if it's a one-to-one, but it's got to be close. But the, the, the activity, interesting you say that private equity is, uh, has dialed it back because they've got committed funds already compared to like corporate development arms or other strategic buyers. Yeah. Any particular reason? I mean, because they have to spend the money. They do. They do. And actually, that's why I think kind of longer term uh, that will help kind of create a floor to some of the M&A activity mm. and, and create more demand on a go forward basis. But I think it was just that's such of a, you know, that type of abrupt change in interest rates and just kind of how quickly the Fed was increasing rates and everyone had to sort of recalibrate their models. And and so I think what that did is it created this dynamic where the financing markets became different. Um, There was less perhaps leverage that a lot of the lenders were willing to put onto a balance sheet to support a transaction, which meant uh, if there's, if there's, you know, uh, any leverage is probably going to be at a higher cost of capital, be more conservative in terms of financial covenants um, if it's any less uh, capital that uh, you could, you know, debt uh, financing that you could put on the balance sheet, that means private equity probably would have had to found more equity. And that sort of changes your return profile a little bit unless you recalibrate the valuation downward so that you can kind of preserve some of that. So this, these, this interaction, this interrelation of, you know, kind of I think the, um, the interest rates um, and, and the amount of financing that sort of was largely responsible for, for sort of tempering mm-hmm. at least temporarily some of the uh, some of the activity at the private equity space whereas strategic buyers you know what we what we've seen is they've 
they've been able to kind of maintain somewhat consistency, I would say, in, in their level of M&A activity, because I think what's happened with the strategic buyers is they're coming out of a, you know, a strong environment, you know, as, as the economy reopened out of COVID, they were able to, in some cases, they had, you know, if, if you're in a, a steel industry, for example, you know, steel prices were at record levels and you just stockpiled cash and you had some mm-hmm. of the best performance, um, you know, that you've, you've experienced in a long time as you had this sort of this upcycle. And so what that's allowed a lot of companies in certain industries to do, including energy and is to is to really uh, you know improve their balance sheets and and obviously focus on uh, the opportunities now to grow the business inorganically through through acquisitions mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. as valuations have come down as, as as private equity is now looking at lesser you know prices that they might be paying and, and underwriting to it's given the opportunity for a lot of strategic buyers to be more competitive again. Super fascinating, yeah, it totally makes sense, and and like. I was, um, as it relates to the private equity activity, Jeff, do you think there's a, like a, a correlation of just the kind of the pause of rec- like you were saying, recalibrating the financial models of like probably having conversations with investors like, all right, now what do we all expect? How do we assess the risk? It's not like skittish of, I don't want to do deals. It's more like getting the feet underneath them a little bit more so than anything. Yeah, exactly. And you know, that's exactly right. No, they still want to do deals. They still have capital. They still have dry powder. They need to place. Um, and so they're still looking for for opportunities. And quite honestly, I think if if it's a company, if you have a company that you want to bring to market and, and it's a high quality asset, you'll still get a lot of attention today. Um, I think it might come with it have to come with some more muted expectations of value if you're the the owner of that business for reasons we just stated. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are definitely buyers on the sidelines looking opportunistically to find um, places to, uh, to place money. We've actually even seen, you know, some private equity firms opportunistically reach back out to companies that may, may have looked at at some point in mm-hmm. 22. Um, and maybe the company was pulled off the market for whatever reason and, and kind of reach back out to see if the founder's owner is, is willing or the advisor to the founder owners willing to kind of re-engage in conversation. See if those muted expectations are more... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Are a little bit more in line with everybody now. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. Yeah, no, that's 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 exactly so, right. Um, Jeff, would would you do, would you do the the listeners uh, and me a favor just to help everybody kind of like the the couple of data points you're talking about the variables with private equity, like how interest rates and the cost of capital impact the debt. And I know we're kind of tying a lot of our topics together here, which I like. It's like how the co- the interest rate impacts the debt and equity structure. And like how when, when private equity firms, they go out and they get the money, and the, the, the debt financing, how that work, how all those things play together. Because I think people, they get it, but it's, this is such a visible example of yeah. why it matters to everybody. Yeah, yeah, sure. So yeah, the, these all these levers are all sort of interrelated, as, as, uh, as you mentioned. Um, if you think about the fact that as, it, as interest rates go up, if you're borrowing the same equivalent dollars, uh, obviously your interest the expense is going to go up uh, on on uh, on, a, on on an absolute you know all else being equal as it relates to the amount of principal, which means more of a company's cash flows are going to go to fixed charges. You'll have less obviously uh, opportunities to have excess cash flow left over um, to, uh, to to maybe reinvest in the business and, and and do some other things, and and so as those interest rates rise uh, and and you've got sort of that stable base of earnings. 
Um, you know, if banks are giving and willing to lend less principal into the transaction, that means to preserve the same level of, of value of the transaction, you're going to have to write a check uh, and, and invest more equity into the transaction as a private equity firm. And the way that private equity firms typically generate returns is is through, in, in you know, certainly investing some equity, but also putting some leverage on the balance sheet because of the financial engineering that's created to value on a post-leverage basis as a company delevers over time. It's kind of the, you know, the scenario a lot of people like to use when you think about leverage buyouts is purchasing of a home. And you may have covered that before where you put some money into your home. And obviously, as as uh, as you know, every month you're making debt payments on your home and building up equity into the business. And so it kind of works the same way um, in, in, in a lot of ways. And so that's why it can be interrelated. And just like when interest rates go up, you can you can't afford the same price of home. The, the value of the house has to come down because there's only so much value, mm-hmm. you know, ability to, to service the debt. Income, to service the same that, thing yeah. happens with kind of, you know, the, the leverage and the, the companies on a company's balance sheet. That's very similar premise. And so how, thank you very much. That was very helpful for the listeners. So then, Jeff, with that, with these debt markets that these private equity firms go to, like, those debt markets, they're raising funds from other people. Now they're competing with like a treasury bond. So maybe that, like, maybe for the listeners, because that's even more into the guts of the private equity world. Like, where are they getting their debt markets, and how are how does what I yeah. just described impact the ripple effect? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, it. It is interesting. I think a lot of people, when they think of uh, of the debt markets, um, they're sort of le- they're sort of uh, normally inclined to just kind of think about the traditional banking market in the United States, the one that's been around for a hundred years. It's very regulated. It's, you know, your, your big banks that you, you read about and, you know, and uh, it's Bank of America and those types of companies that uh, you know, chase that you see a lot and, and, and the smaller banks that are regulated as well, but it's, it's that traditional banking market and they, you know, provide capital and they provide a, a, a type of capital that, that comes with a certain, um, it's a certain type of, uh, you know, expectations. One is it's usually going to be, you know, collateralized. And, and then the other is they're usually going to have very sort of set payment terms. You have to make, you know, certain payments over time. And a lot of times those, that type of debt gets paid off in maybe, say, five years. It's kind of a traditional you know, sort of um, lending product that you, you get at the regulated market. Over the last 10, 15 years, there's been the proliferation of this non-bank market, right? And the non-bank market is going to be things like, private equity funds themselves. It's going to be business development corporations. It's, it's going to be credit funds. And these are funds that uh, will raise capital from a base of investors. And, and usually it can be a committed fund, which means they've reached out to uh, some institutions or they've reached out to high net worth individuals and they've got some committed capital. And that capital is, is available uh, to, to then be deployed following a particular type of uh, investment strategy. And for a credit fund, you know, or a private equity fund that, that has the ability to, to provide credit uh, in the transactions, they can be a lot more flexible and creative uh, with number one, how deep they're willing to go into the balance sheet. And number two, um, the, how flexible they can be on repayment terms. And so the, the, where these private equity firms that ultimately are looking to purchase companies are getting their capital typically is from you know, any one of those number of mm-hmm. sources, right? And and sometimes they'll use, uh, you know, some uh, capital from a senior lender and they'll augment it with capital from a junior lender. Um, junior lenders are more, 
what we often call, you know, mezzanine lenders. It's subordinated. It comes with a higher rate of interest. You can do something that's like a blend of those two, which is a what they call a unitronch product, which is just kind of the marrying of these two. But rather than getting it from two separate sources, it's it's, it's kind of coming two different one tranches or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so they get, you know, the, there's there's any number of different places um, where, where private equity firms can reach out to find debt capital um, to use to finance a transaction. And, and obviously, uh, as as you think about the um, investing opportunities, then that private equity firms or other high net worth individuals face is they're going to say, well, if I can get a you know risk free yield over here, it's six, seven, or eight percent. I don't want to have a yield that's only slightly bit better than that. That has a lot more risk. I need to get an appropriate risk-adjusted rate of return for kind of where I sit on the balance sheet. And and so they look long and hard then at these companies and their business model and their ability to generate revenue and and cash flows and the risk to those businesses and and make that type of determination as to is this the right type of yield for the type of risk that I'm going to be taking. If the end market is say home building, that might be a little bit more of a riskier proposition when interest rates are rising, as opposed to, say, you know, uh, a, um, a an investment opportunity in transportation and infrastructure where, you know, the federal government's committed a mm-hmm. lot of dollars to improving the infrastructure in the United States. Oh, it's so crazy, Jeff. Thank you. That was very helpful. And like, I, I remember <laughs> at the beginning of last year talking to a buddy that's in commercial real estate investing. And he told me this story about this $35 million uh, commercial building that they, uh, that they, they actually developed and then they, uh, they got the tenants and then they sold it at a five cap. And I was like, holy shit. I know that's what was going on. So like for the listeners, I mean, that's, you're, you're looking at 5% return. You're like, versus like that, that's the competition, all right, is the treasury. It's yeah, like, why, exactly. why would you do that when you could just go put it in the bonds? Yeah, it's just, yeah, exactly. It's, it, it is an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting uh, time right now. Um, and and we, we've actually done some uh, uh, work around um, our own principal investing platform and kind of run up against that own dynamic ourselves as we're looking at uh, certain, you know, opportunities because uh, you, you can get, you know, so much more yield today in, um, you know, traditional bonds, particularly, uh, you know, even publicly traded bonds issued, you know, by Ford Motor Company, for example. Mm-hmm. Not even just the federal government, but, cor- but high-rated corporate bonds. Um, and so it's, yeah, it presents an interesting sort of situation that for a lot of investors to really kind of think through. And sometimes that, that leads to a little bit of a pause and, you know, uh, the, the, motor, the momentum, um, mm-hmm. which is I think also why we see a little bit of a slowdown in private equity, it's just because there's that natural inclination to say, well, let me just make sure I... I'm thinking about this. We're hearing a lot about the recession in 23. We haven't yet seen that maybe show up in in the financial performance of businesses, but there is a risk out there. Um, mm-hmm. and, and do I really want to be invested in, in a, this type of company if the recession hits that generates a, this type of investment yield for me near term if I could find a, uh, another place to place my money to get maybe slightly less, but on a risk-adjusted basis, much more preferable. So, so then how like or the activity of private equity or, or the strategic buyers, is there specific sectors like you, you kind of allude to the energy or infrastructure versus home building or something like that? Is there any particular places get, like because the lens of risk is what we're talking about here is like where like the story is making more sense because of supply chain issues, the war in Ukraine, energy issues. Like, is there any certain particular places that people 
are being more excited or are more excited about or you know bullish or bearish on? Yeah, I think we're we're seeing. Um, that's a good question. I think I think where we're seeing a lot of interest um, is in sectors that do have exposure to infrastructure, um, exposures uh, companies that are in transportation. Uh, the supply chain dynamic, I think, is is obviously one that's well documented and and people have been reading about for quite some time. And I think there's a lot of interest, uh, particularly from uh, you know private investors, but also strategic investors to help you know, tuck in other transportation businesses to an existing portfolio company or to an existing operating business uh, to help expand routes and, and really sort of continue to build out, uh, you know, supply chains. Energy, uh, I think, is, is something that I think is, uh, you know, particularly interesting for a lot of folks for uh, a number of reasons. And and I think um, those are the sectors that probably have the most interest in in the in, uh, in the grand scheme of things, at least mm-hmm. uh, that we've seen recently. So it makes a bunch of sense. And how is this all like the, this perception that like whether whatever buyer you are, what type of buyer you are, you're looking at risk and the return and the purpose of why you're doing it. Hence, even if you like all the math makes sense, how is this impacting due diligence? Because risk is on everybody's mind. So I can't imagine the cavity search is getting less intense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That blenders are looking at, you know, under the hood a lot harder and a lot longer and investors are doing the same. And so that just, you know, stretches out the time period that people want to uh, have to be able to get comfortable uh, for sure. It, it, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely taking things, um, to a, a, a longer period of time and uh, a deeper level of diligence, uh, trying to find that that smoking gun, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, that they you know should have seen if, uh, that if they looked harder at the initial onset and in the, in the diligence period. And I think investor, you know, investment committees uh, at a lot of these funds are probably asking a lot of tough questions. So you know those those uh, leaders uh, at that at those uh, institutions probably have to. You know, make sure they have a handle on the tough questions that their investment committee uh, is going to ask them as they uh, uh, that invest committees, you know, makes a determination on whether to vote no or go or no go on an option. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How is are you seeing any impact on deal structures because of all this? Well, we're seeing, I think, a increased uh, probably usage of earnouts uh, in, in these deals. And that's one creative way to bridge value gaps because. Uh, I think um, why we're seeing a little bit of that is, you know, there's a there's a bit of a, a wider bid ass spread now between what buyers are willing to pay and what sellers are willing to accept. You know, if you're a seller of the business, you're saying, well, I, gee, I could have sold my company 12 months ago for a much higher price. Can I still get that value? And the buyers like, well, we're living in a new market now, so no, but we can try to do something creative here to maybe bridge that gap with the use of a of an earnout structure, which um, it's not new. We, 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 we saw that, you know, we've, we've always seen that uh, in deal structures, but we're, we're definitely seeing uh, greater usage of that. Whereas in, um, you know, the environment of 2021 and 22, you know, you may not have had to have an earnout because it was such a competitive environment and deals and values were so already elevated that, you know, there may not have been as much earnout component in that marketplace that we're going to see uh, in, in the 23 market. Makes sense. And as it relates to like some, I'm going back to like, you know, supply chain issues or energy issues or like some of these other fundamental weaknesses that kind of became a little bit more obvious to bigger companies or, you know, larger, uh, larger footprint companies. 
are you a, like, I'm curious in your guys' role as your guys are doing uh, the deal making, like, like people that solve a problem for a supply chain issue or a labor issue or whatever it might be, are you seeing, you know, good companies that solve those problems probably yield some premiums or not? Yeah. Or how's, how's that working? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think there's um, companies that are, are in the space of, um, you know, using technology to improve logistics uh, or, like, you know, warehouse operations where, you know, labor has traditionally been an issue and you can, you can, um, you can use technology in a warehouse and, and maybe lessen the amount of labor. Those are companies that I think uh, captivate a lot of investors and um, have a lot of momentum, uh, as you might imagine, because it's solving that supply chain issue and, mm-hmm. and doing so in a way where if, the, if living in an inflationary environment where labor is more and more expensive, if it, you can use technology and to reduce the labor component in the equation, you can preserve your margins or even improve your margins. Uh, so, so, so yeah, that's definitely something we're also, um, you know, witnessing. What, what are you guys hear? Like, what's the chatter? Are you guys hearing any chatter about the, this, this massive demographic cliff that's continuing to become more and more uh, like aware to people. Um, you saw China's, you know, results uh, last quarter and, you know, I don't know what the heck the, the stat was, Jeff. And I think it was from GF data or whatever. Um, but how many more people retired last quarter, like last year, than you know, boomers than, than normal? Because I think people were just like, screw this and like, you know, toss their hands up or whatever it was. I mean, is the demographic conversations being had or like, how are, like, how is that impacting the, the, the tightness? Absolutely. Of we're having those types of conversations with every one of our clients about labor. And it's, it's exactly, you know, driven by, a couple of different forces, right? One is you just have a lot of the older demographic base, that cohort that just is no longer in an active, you know, active in the workforce. Um, and so that job needs to be, you know, replaced with somebody else. And then, uh, you know, you've got companies that, you know, have traditionally been growing and want to hire more labor and younger labor and, and talent. And, and people have in a tight labor market, uh, the opportunity to, find jobs and make changes, uh, you know, relatively easily. Uh, and so companies have been competing for new talent for quite some time now. And I, I think it's uh, something that has continuously been a battle uh, for most businesses. Um, I know you hear a lot about most recently the you know, technology sector, right? With, you know, Amazon and Google and Microsoft, mm-hmm. Big layoffs there. I think everybody landed on like the ten to twelve thousand layoffs. Like, hey, yeah. they all have this conversation. Like, hey, twelve twelve thousand is about right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that's a scenario where they probably overstaffed as they were growing. And oh yeah, you know, it's so not relative. When you see those stats, Jeff, it's like they hired fifty thousand over the two years, and we're talking about the ten thousand they laid off. I like it. Like, I'm still sad for those people, but like, it's I don't know. I think it's a little mis- misconstrued. <laughs> yeah, now it is. Yeah, because. What we see otherwise outside of the what you see on those headlines is what I just described by a lot of our, 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 our companies we work with work with is, hey, yeah, we're still trying, having a hard time finding labor. We're still trying to figure out ways to cut expenses and use technology wisely as, as labor costs increase. So we can preserve our margins. And, you know, what we are seeing is that companies have been able to do a lot of that throughout um, the better part of 22. I think um, 22, the, the demand side held up pretty strong for a lot of companies. So it allowed companies to, um, for the most part, have a, have a, um, a good, you know, first three quarters of the year. I think, as you know, you might imagine the, 
the fourth quarter is where we kind of started to hear and we're starting to hear that companies really started to see some deterioration on the demand side. And, and so when, when you've got that deterioration on the demand side coupled with, you know, the inflationary dynamics around labor, uh, you start to wonder how that might impact earnings negatively. And, and that's what I think we've got our eye on is what, what, you know, how far is the demand side going to deteriorate to the point where earnings get impacted? Um, you know, a lot of companies want to preserve the employee base. They don't want to engage in a, you know, um, large scale layoffs and they're willing to suffer a little short term pain. Uh, but at some point, it's, you What's know, the you too, right? pain to long term pain. You're going to have to make some tough decisions around your employee base. And we haven't seen that yet, but companies are hyper focused on it. They're hyper focused mm-hmm. on that aspect because I think we are going to see. Probably a lot of companies come in at uh, at the end of fiscal 22 with uh, earnings that probably didn't necessarily meet the forecast management had through the first six months of the year, and maybe a relatively flat year over year. And and so they're looking forward now and providing guidance that's probably going to be lesser than what they otherwise would anticipate it even again six months ago. Mm-hmm. And and thinking about maybe even a circumstance where. 23 earnings will be down relative to 22. Well, it's so interesting, Jeff, and I, I, it all make, I agree with you. It all makes sense. And, like, I think about, like, just kind of the basic anecdotal things that I see. You, know, you talk about Jamie Dimon, who's talking about, like, in eight months or whatever. And it's he's he's looking at, like, the bank reserves dwindling down as the free money is disappearing. So it's like, okay, well, you just look at the, the rate and say, well, people won't have the money in roughly six to whatever months. But then also at the same time, Jeff, you got – like the consumer financing bonanza that's been going on for six years where people can finance a lamp, you know, or a couch or their bed and all this stuff. And it's like, now you're going to do that at 20%. I How that impacts demand, man. I'm very interested to see how that all happens. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And, you know, you, you have a, a lot of people that entered into mortgages uh, that were, you know, variable rate in nature, and they're going to be resetting and they're going to be resetting at these higher interest rates, which means, you know, that consumer, that homeowner is now going to see their mortgage payment go up considerably uh, each month, which, again, is less dollars you have to spend on going out and shopping or, you know, eating at a restaurant. Velocity of the dollar, man. Get get people out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Jeff, this has been awesome, man. I, uh, I I think, honestly, one of my only last questions is, like, if you're, if you're listening and you're a business owner, or if, you're, if, you're, if you were a business owner, you're listening in, you know, what would you be thinking of if you're if you're responsible for payroll and all the personal guarantees? Like, what would you be focused on as you're navigating the waters that we're talking about? Wow, that's a great question. Um, payroll, you know, payroll's a you know what, man? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Making payroll for sure. Uh, that's, that's probably the golden number. cow, man. The golden goose. And then, and then sales is number two, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my dad always said when it came from the copy industry, man, sales solves a lot of problems. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And you know, obviously industries have their own um, sort of differences. Um, so each industry is going to have somewhat different, you know, KPIs, key performance indicators that they're watching, whether they're in, you know, industry A versus industry B versus industry C. And and so uh, I, I think, though, for the most part, it's, it's really going to be, uh, I, I think, th- those two Key, yeah. key critical factors, watching the demand side and then making sure you've got the expense uh, profile of your business appropriately matched to uh, to to the revenue uh, side of the business. 
honestly, man, that's a wonderful response because like, I think one of the biggest challenges that I've seen a lot of people go through Jeff over the last two and a half years is all these like PPP, the ERC, you name it, they were bridges. I mean, yeah. And unfortunately, I'm way too familiar with what bridge loans are back in my old days. So like they're for a reason is to get you to the other side, but there needs to be another side that's proportionally matched. Yeah. And I yeah, think that's yeah. you, you nailed it, man. It's so you gotta have if the demand's lower, it's gotta match what you're doing. It doesn't mean you're you're that big of a problem, it's just gotta be yeah. appropriate, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you know, it's just uh something that whatever every business owner will have to keep his eye that his or her eye on is the going out, you know. Uh, through the, throughout the duration of 2023, I think um, you know, as, as we said earlier uh, in in the call, if if um, if you're a business that is, you know, um, if you're a founder owner of a business, I guess, or an owner of a business, and you're at that point, you're where you're thinking about it's time to sell your business. Now's a good time to you know, kind of you know, think strategically about your business and what can I do to make sure that I come out of this um, 2023 event in a very very strong way. Um, and, and I think that will only behoove you and help you if ultimate intention is at some point to take your company to market, you know, at some point, call it within the next six to 18 months. Um, cause if you can, if you can show that you've been improving the business and if you can, uh, do the things to, um, to right size the expense profile and really be diligent as revenue then, you know, turns more positive, that's, that's more of that revenue dollar will fall to the bottom line and that will make mm-hmm. the margins expand. And you'll be primed to go to market because you'll have this this sort of you know this ability to demonstrate to the marketplace yeah. two three four months five months of a run rate that is to the upside and um, you know margin expansion revenue growth and those are the types of things that investors covet. So you'll become a really attractive asset. And you know what happens when you have a really attractive asset? A lot of people want it. <laughs> and, and that's just supply and demand creating yeah. an auction dynamic, which drives up prices again. And so here yeah, we go. I love it. I love it. Well, and also Jeff too, like for the listeners, you know, you guys are big into ESOPs. You help people with internal buyouts and stuff like that too. And I think it, I, what I, what I like to do, Jeff, and as you, as we continue to do this, feel free to hammer home this concept is like, even if you're not going to go to market, building an intrinsic valued business that's based on sustainable, predictable, transferable cash flow. Like if someone hired you guys to facilitate yeah. a ESOP or do an internal bio, you're still going right. to have to go to the senior lender and tell the story, right? right. So it doesn't matter if you go to it. Mean, it's still going to be over you. You you nailed that word way better than I did. <laughs> it's, a, it's going to be way better for you if you're just like, hey, like look at the story. And it yeah. still can sustain these payments. Yeah, to hold that value. So I think it, and so exactly. you guys play in all more, all sides of the markets too. So I think well, it's we didn't all, really you know. talk much about the ESOP, but we, that's an interesting um, deal structure in the sense that for uh, a period of time when these prices paid by private equity were so elevated, it was hard for the ESOP structure to compete with those prices mm-hmm. paid by private equity because there's inherently some sort of governor built in because of the fact that it is a leveraged structure and you, you have to be able to support the, you know, the fixed charges. Mm-hmm. And so as, as the prices have come down that private equity is going to pay, the ESOP structure has become more competitive, particularly when you factor in some of the really nice tax attributes that are afforded to those founder owners that sell uh, at least 30% of the business to an ESOP and can defer capital gains. Now on a net basis, you might even come out ahead of what you could sell um, to a private equity firm. So we're actually pretty... Yeah, we're actually pretty excited about the opportunities for the ESOP structure in the course of the next, um, so, uh, you know, year or so. 
Years? Yeah. I mean, honestly, man, like if you think of, I've always said, Jeff, and I, I haven't seen the specific model side by side, but I've always said like, even if a strategic buyer had a premium of 20% per se, based on the deal structure, when and how you get your money and the taxes over like a seven, five to seven year period, I swear to God, an ESOP is going to be neck and neck for the net proceeds. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't prove that. I haven't seen, because you know, again, if you do one or the other, you're not going to be able to prove what the other parallel universe is like, but I don't know if you could kind of, if there's some truth to that thought process at least. No, absolutely. No, we, we walk, uh, our, you know, clients do that all the time, kind of show them on a net basis, how, how it compares. And that's the thing that I think a lot of, you know, people don't think about when, you know, they, they think about selling their business and it doesn't necessarily always get publicized. Right. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. always talks about the gross number, right? The gross number is always, you know, people bragging about what multiple of earnings they sold their company for that gross number. It's like, well, that's great, but how much did you keep? You yeah. Know? How many partners and how much debt did you have? <laughs> yeah. And, and how much went to Uncle Sam, right? You got to pay <laughs> yeah, right. taxes on that. Okay. Well, so, you know, that there's a lot of high tax jurisdictions in this country on, on the coast in particular. Where you can I'm in run. Minnesota, man. So I got none of the benefits and all the burden. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you're on the coast, you got a lot of, you know, 50% of your proceeds can go to Uncle Sam or, you know, close to uh, it. So it, 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 it becomes interesting to show what the net number can be in one deal structure versus another. Yeah. Jeff, this has been a blast as always. I appreciate you coming on. I want you for the listeners again, where's the best place to find you? Because you guys have, and Jack, uh, who's been helping us uh, get these organized, you guys have a lot of material. You guys have a lot of sort of services. Where, where's the best place to find you guys? Uh, we're at www.butcherjoseph.com, and uh, I think uh, you'll find all sorts of good information about uh, you know what we discussed today and more. Awesome, Jeff. Thanks so much for, uh, for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Good morning, Doug. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, just uh, doing a couple technical things here, and uh, I was uh, you and I were just ta- talking about. Um, <laughs> the uh, the mountains that we were moving to get our calendars in sync to get this tied up with the uh, quarterly economic and M and A update. And I was very excited when uh, when we had you on the show last uh, last year, well, last quarter. And a lot of people had a lot of great reactions talking about the information that you're bringing them that were actionable. I was doing a bunch of Vistage workshops, Doug, and people were like, oh "My gosh, I had not normally exposed to that kind of privately held data." So, yep. for what it's worth, uh, the mission you guys are on is working, man. <laughs> so I appreciate great. it. Well- yeah, glad to hear it. So um, you guys have a new update. I was actually just poking around on the data. How do you want to start? You want to start kind of because I think it would, as you go into this, Doug, what I think is going to be fascinating if, you know, because I think it's semi-annual, right? So we'll get you on the the one that's in six months from now. And it'll yep. be interesting to see the lag effect of like what's going on right now and how that actually impacts the numbers that you're going to discuss today. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah Absolutely. Um, I can share my screen, right? Kind of throw a slide up. Yep. Yep. Okay. Let's absolutely. go ahead and do that. I think it'll be easier to kind of um, talk through it, and then yeah. um, for the listeners too, we'll make we'll make sure that if you're not watching it, we'll we'll kind of give some commentary around it as well. Yeah. So hopefully you can see this screen. It's kind of the dashboard of middle market performance. Yep. So um, yeah, let, let's talk about these numbers a little bit. So as you mentioned, this is uh, from our middle market indicator survey. Um, it is the longest continually running survey of mid-sized companies in the U.S. We started this back in April of 2012, and I believe this is our 38th wave. That's so awesome. that gives us right this massive 
longitudinal trend data that we could go back and look at different periods of time and compare to, you know, different economic shocks that were going on. So what we're looking at here is year-end 2022 data. Um, it was collected during the first three weeks of December. And then we released our report at the end of January. So this is pretty hot off the press, mm -hmm. uh, fresh information. Which, if by the way, Doug, first... just, a, just as a comment, too, because uh, yeah. I had Brian Billio from uh, ITR Economics on, and we were talking about kind of like the public market data that, that comes out and the employment versus the non-participation and all that stuff. So I think it just to kind of prime the listeners, like this is the real information from privately held companies that truly is even a layered below the macro stuff that everybody's talking about because Correct. it's real of like what we're all actually dealing with. So it's awesome. Correct. Yep. Yep. You're spot on. So let's first look at the growth rates. Um, as a reminder, the MMI kind of looks at five different uh, metrics on an ongoing basis. We look at revenue growth, employment growth, capital investment planning, confidence in various levels of the economy, and then key challenges. So this dashboard has four of, of those five metrics. If we look at revenue growth, 12.2% on average across the middle market, that is continuing to be very strong. This is the third straight survey that we've had 12% or higher. So um, now part of that, we have to attribute to inflation. You know, we can chat a little bit about that, but. What does that run? If you look back for the last 11, 12 years, what is that? What's a typical like, yeah, average? So, so the average? average in the last six years, so we're looking at probably, you know, three years pre-pandemic and then through the pandemic period, it's about eight, eight and a half percent. If you take out okay. 2020, which is the only two waves in the MMI history that we've ever had negative or declines in growth, it's about 10%. <laughs> so yeah, we're running at historic, wow. historical highs, but we have to acknowledge some of that top line growth is attributed to inflation. You know, We can chat about that, but these companies mm -hmm. are telling us that part of their um, tactic for dealing with increases in their own raw materials and cost of business is passing this on to the customers in the form of higher prices and, mm -hmm. and rates and things like that. Mm -hmm. So we have to acknowledge well, Doug, that, I think it's super. there is still quite a bit of organic growth happening. I appreciate you acknowledging that. I was actually talking to uh, one of my best friends and he owns uh, like a rental company and some other stuff. Like, I mean, you're talking about like the guts of America and he's like, record months but the uh the net income is not looking as great so you know i think we have the like i appreciate you recognizing that because we can be lying to ourselves if we're not talking about like some of the sure. other things that are going on sure um so then we look at we compare that to the s p 500 4.4 percent i would say again in the history of this mmi in all but maybe one or two i mean definitely you know count them on less than one hand the number of times where the top line growth hasn't beat the S&P. And then we look at the next 12 months, so 2023, and it's, it's expected to be at 10%. So again, you know, what the, the storyline I've been telling is since we released the report, middle market continues to just chug along with very strong, consistent performance. Uh, we look at employment growth. So this is, this is the key one because, you know, we hear about we're still at record low unemployment. In the United mm -hmm. States, mm -hmm. we still are um, dealing with the effects of the pandemic where you've had people drop out of the workforce. And then you've got um, competition with all kinds of other businesses to find workers that have the right skills, particularly digital skills, as more companies start to transition into more technology and 
platforms that help make their businesses more efficient. So 11.1%, again, you know, some of the record that we've seen. Average has been around seven, seven and a half percent. So this is, you know, well above that. And then again, mm-hmm. for the year, also projecting at 10% growth. Now, the key is going to be, given all the struggles and challenges around finding and retaining talent, is that number um, going to be achievable? So a year from now, we'll be looking back and saying, you know, did the middle market actually grow um, at these rates? I would say, though, Ryan, um, historically as well, this is just a phenomenon we've noticed. In many cases, these projections tend to be very conservative. So we have noticed where, you know, a lot of these middle market leaders tend to underpromise and overdeliver. So they'll say, oh, yeah, I'm only going to grow, you know, eight, nine, 10 percent. And then they end up maybe doubling that. So <laughs> That's awesome. know, part of it is just in the conservatism, I think, of the projection. Well, and the, the lack of getting scrutinized constantly and just making sure, I mean, you're your own judge, right? So you want to make right. sure that you're building all your infrastructure and everything according to what you think you're going to do, not overdoing it. Right. Um, what's fascinating, Doug, and more kind of planting a seed maybe for later, but uh, maybe a later, uh, later segment, but the, um, so I always reference this U.S. Census Bureau um, snapshot that is from, all, I think it was from the last one. So I, I haven't gotten the new data, but it's the one where it shows like, how many privately held companies in the U.S.? It's like the 27 million. Then it gets into like, so essentially like there's a hundred and what the heck is it? 130 uh, people work for the middle market like you're talking about here. And I'm just curious, like if you reconcile or if you have data at a later date that we can pull in and kind of say, okay, where are this, where's this employment growth coming from? Because I think that this topic right here, when I was talking to Brian Bilyeu, it's like the, the challenge is, is like, Everybody, the Fed and everybody with their Bloomberg terminals thought that we were going to be low. And then it came out at 515,000 employment. And they, I don't know, they, my guess would be is kind of this is what's propping that up, not the yeah. Amazons and Facebooks. But then he, he gets into then participation rates and stuff. But like <clears throat> at a later day, it'd be interesting to know from a Census Bureau or like kind of a macro picture, like putting these in context of kind of the overall is kind of just an interesting thing I see people like. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. I mean, that's, it really does take, digging a few layers deeper to understand where all that activity is really happening. I mean, one phenomenon, for example, you know, you could look at when a small business starts that counts as new job creation, but then what is the length of time that that business, you know, st- sticks around? I think the, and where'd they come from, right? Cause they, the failure, they were yeah, doing right. something. <laughs> so, I mean, the failure rate and the extinction, extinction rate for a startup at the five year mark, I, I think is pretty high, maybe like close to 90%. Yeah. are no longer yeah, yeah. around at the five-year mark. And those that do survive then eventually end up growing into the middle market. So yeah, you have to kind of take a look at the details to understand where that's happening. Um, we do that in a sense. So you see on this chart, we use actually ADP. They okay. publish a nice monthly jobs report. So we use their data as a proxy to look at where it, at growth across small and large business to compare. Now it's a mm-hmm. headcount basis. So it's a little bit different than the way we, we measure it. But like I said, it serves as a, a good estimate. And cool. again, historically, middle market has grown uh, it, employment and again, consistent, steady, long-term jobs at a much higher rate than large and small. And we see on the news, like a lot of tech companies going through layoffs right now. Mm-hmm. And then how about, so you got capital investment next? Yeah, next? Cap- capital investment. I mean, what we're really trying to understand there is, you know, where are these businesses putting their money? Um, so we asked in the survey, we asked this in, in in the form of the question, if you had an additional dollar of revenue, what would you do with it? And, 
even though the growth rates and to some degree um, after last uh, the summer wave where we saw confidence continuing to dip, it was actually kind of concerning. Confidence has increased, but this investment planning continues to lag. And, you know, we've got a couple different factors weighing in on that. Obviously, inflation continues to stick around. It's not going anywhere soon. We've got some geopolitical issues happening around the world with, you know, still Eastern Europe and all the things happening there. We've got rates that continue to rise, right? As a center, you know, our first 10 years, we were measuring these businesses in a borrowing um, environment where money was essentially free, right? Like the rates were zero or close to zero. And now as those rates continue to rise, what we're seeing are these businesses saying, you know what, like we're going to start pulling back and maybe delaying some of the capital investment plans that we had, whether that's introducing a new product or service, maybe it's expanding to a new market, maybe it's building a new you know, plant or facility or something along those lines. Now, the areas that we're not seeing um, declines in investment are training and development, which again goes mm-hmm. back to the talent issue, mm-hmm. and then also investment in um, technology and digital. Those are two areas that kind of continue to increase mm-hmm. um, because of the needs of actually running the business and achieving some of these growth rates. Do you have uh, in part of the capital investment um, kind of umbrella or wrapper? Does that include someone buying their building? Um, we don't ask that specifically. No, okay. no, we don't have. You mean like s- selling off physical assets to someone? Or like no, no, no. So like or- I'm thinking of someone that's a distributor manufacturer. They're renting. They decide, like, I don't know, over the last 12 years, maybe here's a different way of phrasing it. Over the last 12 years and 0% borrowing, pretty much, it was very yeah. advantageous to buy your own building, create sure. the equity. And so, like, it's a use of capital, even sure. though it didn't go into the operating entity. Yeah, so that would fall under this option um, of investing in plant facility equipment. Okay. That would be part of that, right? But that's cool. that's kind of at a rolled up level. We don't dig into the various aspects of what that investment okay. is. Um, We generally look at categories like, uh, again, training and development, IT, innovation, uh, expansion. um, Machinery. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Cool. And then the last thing I'll just, yeah, so I I already touched on this a bit, but, you know, we we look at confidence across three levels, global, U.S. economy, and then local, which would essentially be like your town, city, even a smaller you know, geographic region, because that's where a lot of these businesses tend to focus. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously their employees, a lot of their own suppliers and customers tend to be regionally based. So this pattern is very similar to what we've seen in, in past surveys, where the confidence is typically highest at the local level and lowest at the global, because there's, you know, again, not many of these companies uh, are participating in international markets, and they really can't do anything to control what's going on in, you know, different parts of the world. I mentioned that dip, you know, we had seen kind of three consecutive waves of decreasing confidence. And this is, uh, this survey re- represents a bit of a rebound across all three of those levels. So that Which was encouraging to see. And yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see if this continues, you know, into right. the summer, particularly given some of these headwinds and macroeconomic issues that are out there. 
Right. That's what I was going to say. Like, I would have thought that this would have the confidence indicators here would have at least captured like the war in Ukraine and like the supply chain issues of the, you know, kind of decoupling of the globalization. Like none of that stuff's transitory anymore. And people kind of <laughs> kind of wrap that around their head. And now I'm just surprised that since then the their confidence is still going up. But I wonder if like kind of what you said, your, your, the, the hypothesis, I mean, like they're a lot of them are local. So like yeah. my guess is that the tailwinds of manufacturers coming on onshore again are probably part of the confidence growth. Cause I know the manufacturers that we work with are pretty happy with the inflow, uh, the inflow of um, work going, going on. Yeah. And we, and we actually collected some data this time around about that. Um, you know, the supply chain disruption issues that have been around for about 18 months, those have actually started to improve at least for a majority of the industries in the middle market. So as a comparison, in the summer, about 55% of companies said that they had been disrupted in some way in the first half of 2022. That number dropped to 42% in the last half of last year. Got so it's because everybody got their ERTC credit, Doug. And now- <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, certainly there's some of that, but there are some tactics, right, that, that a lot of these companies just decided to do. I mean, when it, when it first started hitting, the easiest thing was just to buy a lot more inventory. <laughs> like, mm-hmm, hey, we're going to mm-hmm. protect ourselves against future uh, shortages by buying a lot more. But that has implications, right? You tie up working capital. You mm-hmm. mentioned warehouses. Like, you may need more space to store all that inventory. Um, so now what we're seeing, though, is shift in finding suppliers that are maybe more domestically based mm-hmm. versus international. We also asked a question about reshoring. Um, there's a significant amount. I think it was like 52% was the was the uh, data point. 52% of companies said in the last year, they've started bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. internally. And like another 42% said they're bringing it back to domestic suppliers or contractors. So we're, we're definitely seeing some more, you know, pulling back and reshoring back into the U.S. to kind of address some of these uh, challenges. We're seeing the same stuff, seeing the same stuff, Doug. And I, I, my, my longer term question is how does that impact inflation? I mean, like we're paying, hopefully we're paying our people a lot more than some of the places that were, you know, manufacturers were getting their jobs done overseas. So that's going to have an impact somehow. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a uh, super, super helpful. It's just so, it, it, I appreciate you being able to share this with us. And I know with the, uh, the the calendar juggling it just bring, brings another like another spotlight Doug on the kind of the things that were uh, from the, the butcher Joseph talking about kind of the deal market and ITR on kind of the macro level and stuff like that just helpful to understand like what was everybody else doing other than the anecdotal stories yeah when's yeah. the next one come out yeah so our next um, survey we will uh, be in the field in June so okay. right after Memorial Day you know we'll start thinking about questions you know probably May. We'll finalize the survey. We'll get it out in June, and then our report will come out in July. So that'll be the mid-year update that'll represent the first half of this year. Perfect. And again, you know, we collect those five things, but then we look at some other issues as well. So this, for this latest survey, we looked at inflation, potential recession, supply mm-hmm. chain disruption, and then workforce challenges. For the next one, and you know, if you have any um, thoughts, I'd be happy to hear them, or because we're mm-hmm. well out ahead of it. But one of the topics that people keep asking me about when I'm presenting this information is um, ESG. And it's not something we've ever really you know, asked about or talked about. Mm-hmm. 
but it's starting to come up more and more like, hey, is this an issue that mid-market companies even talk about? Mm -hmm. My assumption is that the farther up the revenue bands you get, the bigger and bigger an issue it's going to be and the probably, you know, the more thought, time, resources are being put toward it. And then at that lower end, it's probably like, oh, yeah, we can't, you know, <laughs> we're not really worried too much about this. But uh, I think yeah, like, I'm, I'm strongly getting the sense that we're going to explore that maybe in the yeah. next in the next survey. Interesting. I mean, I, I mean, it makes sense, but I, I think you're the way you worded it is kind of, I mean, if I were to say from my exposure to the topic, it's very similar to your experience where it's like the, the, all the people we work with or the people we talk to, the people I present in front of, it's like, it's a, it's a thing. We acknowledge it, but like, we're not wondering which one of these 17 manufacturers across the world should we work with? It's like that yeah. one has got a relationship with us and they have managed to keep us going. So yeah. it, a little bit different of a problem, but yeah, yeah I, I think, think it's going to be, it's probably going to be one of those issues. That's just a slow drip, you know, over time, it'll start to become maybe more and more and more important. But the key question, like a lot of things with mid-sized companies, I know they're going to ask, where do I start? Mm -hmm. Like yep. I get it. I hear about it, but what, like, where should I actually start that process? And so I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who can help provide that advice. Yeah, I'd say the only thing I could think of right off the bat, and the listeners listen in, feel free to reach out and uh, ping ping myself and Doug, is the demographics, Doug. Of just, I, I know you guys had another survey that you did about kind of succession and transition. And, you know, the thing that I'm consistently finding, Doug, because I pull up that Census Bureau uh, snapshot and like the average age is like 65 now. And it's like, we have to deal with this. And like, so the the big thing that I'm seeing is I as as I'm out kind of doing the the tour of speaking however you want to call it is the leadership succession plan issue like do you have someone else that's capable because it's the whole gen you know baby boomers gen x gen or millennials gen z like who the hell is going to do these jobs and then the other thing would be is are people growing the equity value of their business because everybody's been talking about revenue and revenue as we just talked about inflation gets messed up into that so it's like people shifting their mindset of like the leadership role, ownership role, and then growing value. It's like, I'm just curious. I'm always curious, Doug, of like middle market companies. Are you focused on growing the value of your business or is it just private equity that's got it figured out like that? You know what I mean? So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so it's just fascinating as far as like getting the minds, other mindset of these people. I know that the who's going to take over my role question constantly is being talked about. Yeah. Well, you bring up a great point. I mean, we've seen plenty of examples over the years in these family-run businesses, to your point, where I think the term is lifestyle business, mm -hmm. you know, where it's like, I'm just happy, eight, you know, give me six, eight, 10% growth a year. Like, I'll just take mm -hmm. it. I'll have a nice life and be able to do other stuff. And yeah, I, I think, you know, where the focus is on creating that that broader value. I also had somebody approach me a week or so ago at a, I was making a presentation and they were asking me about like, Hey, do you guys do anything about multiples or, you know, that businesses are selling for, are those going down because they seem to be overinflated for a number of years. And so that could be some interesting stuff for us to look at as well. I mean, we don't specialize obviously mm -hmm. in M and a particularly, but it is such a huge part of the middle market. There's so mm -hmm. much deal flow. I wonder if that, you and uh, do you know do like uh, to kind of keep our eye on that? Do you know Craig at Pepperdine uh, Capital yep. Markets? So oh, yeah. uh, Craig's been on the show, and so like I wonder if there's a collaboration with you guys or if there's too much overlap. But um, I mean, they're 
report is exhaustive, man. <laughs> it's like 190 pages or something ridiculous like that with industries, ranges, sizes and stuff like that. So whether it's something worth, uh, you know, I, I would be interested. I, I know that the listeners are too. That's kind of why we're doing the Butcher Joseph and the ITR is like, what the heck's going on here? Well, like people putting less, you know, more equity down and less debt financing and how is that impacting the multiples? So definitely part of the segment that we're talking about here, people care about. So yeah, yeah. however, yeah. however you integrate it, man, I, I think you'd be, uh, you'd have some avid, uh, curious listeners. Okay, cool. Awesome, Doug. Well, I appreciate you so much coming on. Why don't you, for the listeners again, where to find, maybe two two things, where to find this material? Because on your guys' website, I love, I'm, I'm a visual guy, so I love how you guys organize the data. So where to find yep. that? And then the second question, Doug, is if people want to participate in the next survey, is there is there a way that they can do that? Yeah, so I'll, the first part, um, if, if uh, you go to our website, it's middlemarketcenter.org. Uh, all of our reports, data, surveys. Um, it's part of our mission is to make this publicly accessible. So this example that we covered today, the MMI, it has its own landing page. You can click on historical data. You can look at, we've got about eight industries where we put together two-page infographics. Obviously, awesome. you can pull down you know, the latest and greatest report or any of the historical information. So yeah, I would welcome any you know, listeners who are interested in following this. You can also subscribe, and that ensures that you'll get kind of continual flow of updates, um, webinars, information of that sort. Um, in terms of participation, so it's an interesting question. Um, we've thought about that from time to time, just kind of opening it up and getting more responses. So, you know, we work with a third-party research firm that helps us Got collect it. this data. So a lot of times, you know, it comes down to like the process of them going through and doing QA checks and making you sure you don't want to do their validate. job is the easy answer. <laughs> yeah, it's well, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I would like to think about ways to do that because I think it would be interesting to get, um, you know, kind of broader participation. We mm -hmm. So, for instance, we collect a thousand responses, but hey, would there be anything wrong with collecting 1,100? No, it would just make the data set that much more rich. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. um, yeah, we're not there yet, but something that we're thinking about doing. Cool, we'll keep us posted. Yep. Doug, we'll do. thank you so much. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll uh, stay tuned for the July report. Sounds good. Take care. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. If you lasted throughout the entire update, I uh, appreciate it. I hope the information was valuable. Got any questions as far as other information you'd like to see or thoughts? Feel free to send them over because we're going to keep this rhythm going. Hopefully, we get into this cadence where you have a good idea of what happened last quarter because you've been paying attention. And I'm very excited to see how the next uh, quarterly update and specifically even the, uh, the the six month one with Doug turns out given how much stuff we're going through. If there's anything I would suggest, if uh, you have not checked out the Intentional Growth Bootcamp that's coming up, it's in May, it's in Orlando, Florida. Go check it out at arcona.io. Also the new Intentional Growth Academy with 71 re-recorded videos. Uh, we just integrated all the three years of feedback and lessons learned that we had. We incorporated that all into the new material, which I was super pumped about. So check out the new Academy or the bootcamp if you're interested in learning more. Otherwise, I would give my shout out to ITR Economics. Again, they were the sponsor of the show. Couldn't do it without them because they just are unbelievably gracious with the information, the time that they're spending. So I appreciate everybody for tuning in and I will see you next week.